0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Coffee and Deer podcast. I'm your host, Nick Pinizzotto, here as always with the good doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. And today's guest is going to be our friend, Mr. Ron Hawes, who we have talked about bringing on the show. We've talked about him many times on the show. Well, he's actually going to be on the show this episode, and you're going to really enjoy this. Uh, Ron is a friend of the show, a friend of us personally. Uh, He's with the Delaware Wildlands Conservancy. And We're going to cover a couple of things here. We're going to cover uh, just an outstanding buck that he shot two seasons ago. We're going to have him tell us that story, and we're going to get into some habitat stuff hopefully and uh, uh, to take him down that path and gain some of his knowledge. He is probably the best woodsman that I've ever I had the fortune of hunting with and learning from, so uh, we'll have Ron on the show today to talk about some of that. Our sponsor is Onyx Hunt. And I can tell you, they've been a sponsor before. And every time they're on, I talk about how much I use it. Well, I was just on it again today, which I seem to be about daily. And obviously for hunting, marking spots and whatnot, it's outstanding. Uh, There are a lot of other things you can do with it too. So for example, uh, I'm going to just admit it. I use it to find out who some of my neighbors are. I live in a town and I see people up the street and I'm like, I wonder what that person's name is. And so I go into the app and I can look them up and spy on my neighbors all right it's probably not spying on them but you know let's say you're driving down the road and you see you're a waterfowl hunter and you see consistently a big field full of canada geese that you want to hunt well you can very easily open up that app and find out who the landowner is so onyx maps something i use a ton you can use it online and offline so even if you're not connected to the internet or don't have a signal you can still download the actual maps and get accurate readings and placements. And I want to mention, we are running, have been running for a little while now, a special, a membership special. If you join, uh, if you, for $99, let me put it to you this way, $99, you can get an NDA membership. You get an NDA membership hat, and you also get a one-year membership, the Onyx Hunt Elite, which is top-of-the-line membership And so it's $160 value for $99 and you become an NDA member. So please take advantage of that. Onyx has been a uh, long and proud partner of the National Deer Association. Mike, how the heck
1: are you? I'm doing okay. Um, We got to spend a little bit of time together last Sunday uh, at your place. I got to see some work that Ron did, so I'm excited to actually Pick his brain about what his thought process was, because as always, I'm willing to learn something new, and um, I liked what he did there. And hopefully, he'll be able to explain that to everybody to uh, give them some ideas that something they can try.
0: Yeah, yeah, we got a chance. We'll talk maybe a little bit about it here after we hear from Ron and see how what he has to say meshes with that. So, um, but yeah, it was nice to get out and just spend some time last weekend. And it's funny as I go out and I look at projects, it's it seems like, in my mind anyway, I'm always the person that likes to complete a project. Sometimes it drives people crazy because I want to see a project from start to finish, but when you're managing properties and habitat, there really is no finish, and so that's something I'm training myself on, but I feel like we put a pretty good dent in things while we were out there, so certainly appreciated your help. With that, let's go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, We'll bring Ron in and talk a little deer hunting talk a little habitat management and looking forward to introducing him to our coffee and deer listeners it's great to finally bring our good buddy ron hawes into the show we've been threatening this for a while we can bring keep bringing ron up on the shows and say we're going to bring him on well we're actually doing it this time uh ron is the land manager really i think his official title is sussex county delaware project manager for the delaware wildlands conservancy uh, but beyond his professional work he's a, a great friend and hunting partner uh you hear you hear me talk about him quite a bit uh mike got a chance to actually meet ron in person here recently which is pretty cool and uh, ron has killed Many great bucks during his career, but his one that he shot in 2020 may be his best yet. We'll, we'll let him answer that for us, but uh, he's going to tell us a story about that, and I'm sure we'll get into some other things. So, Ron, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, well, thanks for having me on.
2: Good to be
0: on. Well, we look forward to, to doing this, and we need to do it more often. I think we just need to have a segment, Mike, called the Ron Hawes Friend of the Show segment. What do you think about that? <laughs>
1: i think that I could work
0: yeah i think it could work too so ron i said a few things about you but why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself okay so
2: i've been with delaware wildlands for 17 years uh like you said i'm the uh land steward product slash project manager for the property um and before that i was actually the hunt club president for two years and Before that, I was with the hunt club that the the property is a little over 10,000 acres and on the north side. There's route 54 and that 6000 acres is leased out to a hunting club and I was actually in a hunting club. um, For quite a long time and then I was doing a lot of volunteer work and uh, one day I was offered a job, you know, I'm really. uh, really love the swamp, the property. It's it's a very unique property in Sussex County, Delaware. And uh, I've walked every square inch of that swamp. So um, that kind of, to make a, a long story short, that's that's how I got into the, uh, being, ended up being the land steward for the property and taking over the forestry operations and a lot of habitat work and and, and I love it. It's I think I may have said this before, Find a job that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Well, it's, it's been great. And I've had other jobs. Um, they've all been learning experience. Um, but, uh, I've settled into this job and I really enjoy it. So
0: keep going. Well, it's interesting. This is how I originally met Ron. So if, if folks are listening and you weren't listening to our previous podcast, uh, the, the one that was called red dog road that the doctor and I used to do, we had Ron on there before. So some of you may have heard from Ron before, but this might be the first time for many. And how I first met Ron was, and I think we figured it out, Ron, it's been what, at least five years ago now. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I purchased a hunt at the QDMA National Convention. And it was, it was this hunt in Delaware. It was the original, the first ever QDMA legacy property. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, well, Delaware seems like an interesting place to hunt deer. I've never done it, but I'd really like to see this property and what's going on, being a conservation-minded person. And, and so I took a chance on it and ended up going out there. And uh, every, everybody telling me in advance of the hunt just kept talking about Ron and, oh, he's such a great woodsman and you're going you're gonna to really enjoy it. And yeah, I enjoyed it so much that Ron wasn't able to get rid of me. And now... <laughs> Uh, it's an annual, <laughs> annual thing. And and I've even had Ron over here to my place, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So, uh, anyway, that's how we got originally connected and through, through Ron's work, but also the passion of hunting. And so, man, it's been a fast five years, Ron. Yes, it has. Yes, it has.
2: It's It's been, but it's most definitely been an adventure for sure. I mean, it's been a lot of fun. Um, uh, Like I said, it's it's, that, that swamp is so unique and, uh, the seasons, even every season is different. So
0: yeah, it's very unique. It's like nothing I'd ever hunted before this. I've hunted everything else pretty much except for giant swampland. And so I've learned a lot and I know the doctor will tell you, I'd come back and tell stories. I'd be like, Mike, this guy's a maniac. You wouldn't believe he said, we're going extreme hunting today. And you had to bring waiters. And I almost died before I got back there. Only then the hunt ended, and then I almost died on the way back out. So, Mike, do you remember me telling you about all this?
1: I do remember those stories initially, and there was, there are so many of them just because the, the habitat and the actual topography is so different. I remember, and what we probably should do is just maybe have Ron give a complete overview of what this property really is, but I remember one of your first stories talking about how Ron called... A 15 foot rise in elevation, a hill, compared to what we have here in Pennsylvania. So, um, yeah, definitely different. But maybe Ron should give a, a general overview for everyone to kind of catch them up on just what the 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 geographic um, makeup is, the the actual habitat makeup that we're talking about here. Yeah, we
2: had to chuckle. You said a 15 foot rise. It's more like 15 inch rise. Yep. <laughs> yep. It's, yeah. And what's so unique about that swamp, and Nick knows, uh, especially hunting this year, every season is it, completely different. It depends a lot. That swamp, uh, you know, it's a swamp. So the hydrology plays such a, a major role in um, the, the, the travel patterns of the deer because you have some – I mean, don't get me wrong. The, the deer, it's nothing for deer to walk through water. I mean, it can, water doesn't bother them. But it changes up it changes up their travel patterns somewhat. You know, when you have when you have years where the hydrology, where the water table is really high, and, and you have a lot of standing water, they you know of course they don't bed down in the water, so they seek out these um, slight elevation uh, areas in there. You know, just little hummocks and stuff in there, versus years that it's really dry well it it changes it changes up completely I mean those deer in there love those bottoms I mean they Nick will attest to this you know I remember Nick coming down and you know what you know I've been up to Nick's place up in Pennsylvania a couple weeks ago to help him with his habitat work and you, you see this wide open uh mountainous hilly terrain and you come down here and it's these slight elevations is where the open woods is and nick would want to hunt them and i said nick you've got to get in these bottoms i said that's where those deer just love to travel those bottoms and that it's uh that's what's unique about it we've got a lot of sphagnum bottoms uh, and like i said the hydrology right now i was actually this morning in there doing some habitat work and the, the water levels are up some but not what they were uh two years ago when the, you know some places uh that's some something else so unique you have different areas in there that different uh, hydro periods i mean you know we got right behind the farm there we got what i call the horseshoe pond nick's been back there hunting with me quite a bit and and the hydro period of that pond is, is, is basically six months out of a year maybe a little bit longer and you'll have some of these little some calm Delmarva bays, whale wallers, you know, they they call them all different things, but but they're little depressions that uh hold water but they hold water, some of them hold water a lot longer um in the season than other ones, than other times. You know, they're just uh and what's so that's another thing that's so unique about that swamp. It's just amazing.
0: Yeah, there's certainly a lot unique about it. And man, we could have a whole show just talking about some of the adventures in there. Uh I want to get into uh, your deer hunt here, but before we do that, Ron, we're going to do something a little different here. We we do. You're a regular listener of the show, so you're aware that we have the Ask NDA Anything segment. And so when these particular questions that I have here came in, I thought, you know what, we're going to mix it up and we're going to ask Ron to answer these questions. And of course, the doctor and I will weigh in and it won't be as nearly as helpful as what Ron has to say, I'm sure of that. But uh, at any rate, here are the questions. So the first one is let me find them here first see i'm already off to a good start okay here we go this is from steve and steve says i have a few small food plots in new york that were planted for fall but i want something uh, i want something in them for spring what do you recommend and is frost seeding an option so that's steve in new york what do you think ron
2: Oh, actually, there was an article and I can't remember what magazine it was where you, they, they've actually drilled uh, brassicas in a very late winter. I think that, that would be something you could put in in the spring. Um, it's, there's so many blends out there. It all depends. You know, uh, I, I can't I would never recommend it. I'd have to see the site. You know, you, there's a lot of things that come in play on that. You know, the soil, you know, what amendments you have to put in the soil if you got really sandy soil. You'd want to put something in there real early um usually a blend um you know some people like to put in a, a monoculture planting, but when you put a blend in there if, if, if one seed doesn't take you'll have something as a backup you know what i mean like, the, like there's something there um it, you know it, it, it's hard to say uh, buckwheat's good in the, in the late spring, you know, when, when the temperatures get, soil temperatures get 55 degrees, uh, you know, it has to be a little bit warmer. But uh, I've actually double cropped a lot of, a lot of you know, I don't have a lot of food plots. I have a lot of wildlife plots um, that, that uh, I don't disk anymore. Everything's drilled in the ground. I do a lot of frost seeding. Um, so it all depends. You know, it's, uh, uh, you know, on that line, your sister uh podcast deer season 365 you've had some great people on there these listeners need, you know dr craig harper he's had a major influence he's an expert on food plots uh forest stand improvement um you know he's got great books out um there's some other ones you, what, what shan kamek prescribed fire that's another good option um Adam Keith, developing a property management plan. You know, there's a lot of people out there that have publications out. Like I said, Craig Harper, I don't think he realizes how much of an impact he's had on a lot of my management decisions. He he's been, he's been a major influence. So, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard to say exactly what to put in there you almost have to see the site, what the soil's like, um, your growing season. So along that line. I, I hope I answered that as best
0: I can, but well, you answered it like a true scientist, and you said it just depends, and that's how every one of our like my biologists here on the team they answer almost everything with well, it depends, and so now I'm going to throw it over to a, a guy that we call the doctor, and we'll get his analysis. Mike, what would you do? You because you have property in New York, so if you were going to th- throw something down right now for a spring
1: food plot, what would you be doing? Um. For me, I'm gonna gonna give him some advice. Does frost seeding work? And the answer is yes, I have have successfully frost seeded in New York. It all depends on what he wants to put in. Now, if he's going to put in clover, what he has to realize is that this first spring, it is not going to be a very massive, lush food plot to provide nutrition. It's actually just trying to stabilize itself and actually get established. So if he is going to frost seed clover, which does a really nice job because of the small seed side size, um, that should work just nicely. However, I'd actually probably say he might want to actually add a, a second amendment, very similar to what Ron was saying. Something that's fast growing. Um, a lot of your cereal grains will work well in the spring. Um, winter rye would be a good would be a good bet, acting as a cover crop. Let that clover get established, and he could just mow that down. Uh, later on. Uh, Buckwheat's also another good one, especially if you don't know what your soil um, makeup is. Buckwheat can probably grow on a cinder block if you just watered it. So um, frost seeding works. Uh, Make sure the seed is small. And if you're going to pick clover, realize that you're not going to have a lush food plot come turkey season without adding additional amendment, like a, a secondary cover crop that's fast growing.
0: All right. Well, I can't add anything more to that. I think those are great answers. And the next question is Eric from Maryland. So, Ron, this is actually right in your neck of the woods. Uh, It says, I hear you guys talking quite a bit about saddle hunting, and I'm interested in trying it. Any pointers you could offer before I take the plunge would be appreciated. Ron, you have any saddle hunting pointers? Well, this is my
2: first year using a saddle, and it it takes a little bit getting used to. Um, My advice is to uh, do some research. I've got a, uh, I forget what it is, an Arrow light. I like it. I know I think you've got with a tethered or something, but just just do some research. And the main thing is get out way, 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 way before the season and practice with it. You know, I practice with the climbing sticks and the, uh, just the, the climbing rope method. I've tried both of them. Uh, most of the times down here, and I, I don't know what part of Maryland he is, but we have these, you know, we have a lot, of a lot, of, a lot of pines, a lot of sweet gum, maple, they're, they're straight bold trees. They don't, they don't have that dentritic limb growth, like say up in New York, where you can throw a line over it and, and just, you know, just, just, uh, put that hitch in your line and climb the tree down here to me, sticks the sticks work pretty good with that, with that saddle, um, i've been i'm used to in the dark with my eyes closed putting up a lone wolf hang-on stand which i still have that option in my toolbox but i think the saddle hunting once you try it and get familiarized with it it's going to take a while until you everything becomes just impulsively you know how to do it you gotta you you gotta think of safety you gotta make sure that you got your your um all your safety equipment, you know, that you're, you're, you're hooked to that tree the moment you take your foot off the ground. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, I think, I think saddle hunting is, is a great, and as far as uh, mobility, oh my gosh, it is, uh it is way, 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 way more versatile than carrying any kind of a, like a climbing stand or a hang on stand. Once you get used to it, you'll love it.
0: Yeah. I'll just add to that. It's a great answer. And, uh, Mike and I have a couple years experience now, what I'll say my, for my point here real quick is just want to reiterate what Ron said, spend some time in it. Don't go out the first day of hunting and say, okay, now I'm a saddle hunter because it is, does require some, uh, unique, it's not complicated. It just requires some practice with where your shots will come from and how to, to approach that. But mine would be just to let you know in advance that probably the first saddle you buy won't be the last saddle you buy. Uh, I can tell you that Uh, the one, the one that I was using for the first couple of years by the end of this season, it was, it was really killing me. So I literally ordered a new one from the tree one day. And so I would say, be willing to try out a couple and find something that's going to work for you. Uh, doc, you kind of done that.
1: Well, yeah, what my suggestion is going to be is is kind of off of that same point. Saddles are becoming increasingly popular, but you're it's going to be a financial investment. And I'm all about research three or four times and buy once initially, so you can at least get a little experience with it. So I would have to say that there are a couple options. Um, a company like Tethered, they actually have these I'm just going to call it a saddle hunting rendezvous, if you will. If you go onto their website every year, they travel around the country where uh, they have representatives that will get together and you get to try a lot of options. Um, and it, it doesn't have to be specifically a tethered product. People come from uh, all different walks of life with all different types of saddles. Um, there's a, a talk form. I believe it's called saddlehunter.com. They actually sponsor the same thing where people get together. You can try and that's my suggestion is try other people's saddles first and find what you like, because based on your, your body type, uh, your weight, how much hunting clothes you like to have your, whether you're shooting a compound recurve or longbow, all of those things are going to come into play and different saddles will serve you differently and better. And you'll find one that you really like that works for you, which will hopefully have you keep it a little bit longer. Uh, I'm also a Nick, correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm going to send you to at least look at NDA is offering uh, a deer steward module that's called, I think, uh, urban hunting. And I believe the person that's doing that is really big into tethered. And my guess is he's probably going to talk about, uh, saddle hunting in those situations, getting again, getting out quiet, not damaging trees and people's, uh, like close proximity to their houses and things like that. So, um, my guess is there might be a saddle hunting component of that. I'd maybe give that a look, see, but those are my options for you to try first before you buy one.
0: Yeah. Uh, Uh, Tyler Chamberlain, actually, or Taylor Chamberlain is going to, is the urban, the urban bow hunter, famously the urban bow hunter. He's going to certainly take us through some of that. And we had a good conversation with him at the ATA show. All right. Enough of the questions. I want to get into a good deer story.
1: Hold on a second. You have to appoint a a hat winner.
0: Oh, I do. That's, I'm sorry. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, I'm going to go with, I'm gonna go with the, the saddle question. So let's, uh, let's go with uh, Eric in Maryland. We're gonna send you a hat. I think that was a very thoughtful question and welcome to saddle hunting. Feel free to send us your questions as you go along too. We're happy to help you out as much as we can. All right, Ron, we're gonna take a trip down memory lane. Like I've said at the beginning, you have taken a lot of really great deer uh, you've probably passed up more great deer than most people will ever see in their hunting careers, but there was one that you took, not this recent season, but the season before that I've been wanting to get you on to talk about. And so just take us through that hunt. Let's hear it from your words. <laughs> yes. i um,
2: unforgettable buck for sure. So he, uh, he dressed 210 pounds. He was a six by five. He uh, had an 18 inch, somewhere around an 18 inch outside spread, 18 or 19 inch, I can't remember. His G threes were 12 inches. Uh, beautiful buck. Um, you know, I, I had some. Well, you know, I had some cameras out, but I kind of leave them out for a little while, and I don't know. I kind of like the mystery aspect of hunting. The problem with me with cameras. Is like the kid in the candy store you put those cameras out and it's like oh i think i'm gonna go back and check the cameras and you over check them so now what i do is i more or less put them out and i just leave them out for like right before the bow season and i'll go and harvest the cameras and see what's on them and and,
1: uh this
2: one place and nick you're familiar what i'm talking about on the south side of the pond there's like a pinch point there uh, but you got to have all the conditions just right well i had a camera out there and had some beautiful beautiful bucks on there so uh it actually ended up being halloween so i put my halloween costume on which of course you know is camouflage <laughs> <laughs> and i uh, went to this pinch point i needed an east wind or a northeast wind so i had that i was back right up to a uh butted bottom to the south i mean to the north of me about 150 yards was was the southern end of the pond, southern edge, I should say. And I knew that there were some, there were some nice deer in the area. So in the afternoon, I snuck in there, had like about a uh, five, 10 mile an hour northeast wind. So the wind was, and, and that dictates, uh, that dictates where I hunt. The wind. If you gotta play the wind in that swamp and Nick will tell you that swamp is very difficult sometimes even when you get the wind right, but the wind was just right set up. Uh, I was up in my hang on stand and and set up right next to this uh on the south side of this ridge back up to this flooded bottom and um uh, and then it was maybe half hour, forty five minutes. Um I heard movement to the north I mean, in that time there was a little bit of, there was, there was, there was a little, the hydrology, of the woods was a little bit more flooded. So there were some little pond, ponding areas of water and I could hear something coming in my direction. And lo and behold, right from the north, here comes this buck. I was set up over a scrape and I wasn't that high off the ground. I was maybe, I don't know, 10 foot. But I didn't get any higher because there was no need to because I had some, uh, Epicormic stemming in the tree that I was in. Basically there was a lot of a lot of um, limbs that were concealed in my setup there. So I was concealed pretty good. Um and I was set up over a scrape. I had a scrape within maybe 10 yards of my stand and I mean it was it was hot. So so here comes this buck, and he might have been, I don't know, he was a four by four, he's maybe been a hundred and I don't know, 120 class, something like that. I don't know. I'm not very good at scoring him on the hook, but uh, anyway, he was a nice buck. But it was one of those ones that you look at and you're thinking, "Uh," you know, if you think about it, he's probably not big enough. And sure enough, when he got close, but I mean, he came right to the scrape. So I'm sitting there watching him, and then he kind of looks in my direction. He's kind of coming towards me a little bit, and I'm like, oh my gosh! I said, I hope he don't come around. I said, it's over. But anyway, when he 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 just kind of mulled around there a little bit like he was just waiting for something and then I can hear I was facing kind of like to the to the uh, uh, northwest and to the east of me I couldn't see I could hear a deer coming another deer coming and this buck he just kind of locked up on what was coming I couldn't see the deer I'm up in the stand and I, I couldn't move and, and I just cut my eyes to the right when the deer got in view and in 10 yards there was this buck standing there. I mean, he was just tremendous. And but I couldn't shoot because if I moved, he would have saw me because he was in his plain of sight. He was kind of like you know, those deers have those eyes on the side of their head and they're looking for movement. I could not move and 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 plus even if he turned even if he turned and looked away from me i still wouldn't have had a shot because this other buck is standing there and he's kind of facing my direction it's like i knew from experience you know it's just you just got to wait out the situation just you know don't force it you can't force honey you just gotta let it play out and um and i just waited and finally um uh, the buck the younger buck he finally turned and he did it old tail and i was like man that's all I needed to see. And he kind of he started going to the west out towards the ag fields. And then I didn't I didn't move my head, but I could see movement. This deer, the the, the big buck, he finally put his head down a little bit and he started following that other buck. And when he did, I just first thing was going through my mind is when when he got ahead of me a little bit, I couldn't shoot because there were some briars and some high blueberry there. I was like, there's no way I can put off the shot. So he's slowly walking, and I was like, i got to look for my window here. Okay, here's my window. I had, like, two gum trees that were maybe two foot apart, and there was another one uh to the other side of that one. So I, I, I didn't have a shot that window. I had another window, but that the buck would be getting farther away. So anyway, when he got out there to that window, I think it might have been 26. Ran 27 yards or something like that. Uh, When he got behind them gum trees, I went to full draw. And it was a hard pull on the way shot, but I was confident. You know, I I shoot that bow three times a day, every day. Um, And when he got got there to that window, I just bleated. I I let out a loud bleat, and he stopped. And it was just, like, picture perfect. And everything went to script. And when I released the arrow, I knew I had a pass-through, and he just, he bolted. He bolted and he came around to my left and he went right into that uh, flooded bottom that I was <laughs> backed up against and I mean it sounded like it sounded like a whole swim team going out there <laughs> he was making so much noise and I watched him and, and and he went when he got out there and it was hard for me to see one place but I seen him go down I'm like that's good so I waited a minute. And it, it, it wasn't a minute, it was like maybe five seconds. And then he got up and took <laughs> off. And I was like, well, that's not good. So, But I was confident I made a good shot. So I just waited. I waited about 15, 20 minutes. And of course, like I said, I'm just kind of, my mind was going like a computer. Okay, let's replay this now. You know, I, I'm pretty sure I made a good shot. So I just waited about 15, 20 minutes and I got down out of my stand and I went over to where the arrow was. Well, guess what? I couldn't find the arrow, <laughs> so you know that that swamp, that duff in there, when you shoot when you're shooting down at that angle, um, well you know if you're if you're shooting a if you're shooting a target out in the yard or something, you're trying to make these long shots, and when that arrow hits the ground, it goes underneath that grass and that duff, and you can't find it. Well, it's the same thing when I made that shot, I had a good pass through, when I got over there, it was like I couldn't find the arrow, no blood, and I was like, well i i was like should i wait and i was like i, I was pretty confident i had shot because the way that deer took off he, he was one of those you know he, he was making that all out run death plunge death run so i started tracking of course i had knee boots on in the water out there where he went it was about 18 inches deep and i said you know what it's not that cold out here i just fall and i kept ringing but what happened where he went down there was kind of like a half submerged deadfall there and he got in that and I don't know whether he went but he got tangled up in that. So when he went down. And once he got once he got through that, he, he got back up. Well I followed him where well, he got back up on the high ground. Then I started finding blood. Uh it wasn't heavy blood. Uh the shot was a little bit just a little bit high. Um, so you know, he did a lot of I imagine he did a lot of hemorrhaging inside and then I tracked him for maybe another Oh my gosh! I'd say another forty, forty, fifty yards before he expired, and he just he was right up against his beautiful loblolly pond. It was like—it was unbelievable. No, it's a, it's it's just one one hunt, one hunt of many of that in there. And it's just been—it's just been—you never forget it. Well, you you can you can attest to that, Nick. Your first buck that you shot in that swamp, you know. I don't know who was more excited you were you or me when you shot that
0: up i think i think maybe you but that's okay um but yeah it is i I can just you know the sound you described the sound of this crashing and the swamp can be so deadly quiet but when deer are going through that water and especially one that's hit it sounds like a freight train going through and it just shatters that silence and just the adrenaline and just hearing the story makes your heart pound and so one of the things you said though was that you had a few cameras out, you had pictures of some nice deer, but you didn't have any pictures of this deer, right? He was a complete surprise. Yeah,
2: no, that's that's you know, I always, you know, sometimes I say with technology you don't need it or anything, but it's like you said, it's nice to know what's out there. But even with the cameras out, he was he was never around. Like he he could have been maybe a hundred yards traveling through hundred yards from that camera or something but I never had him on the camera. it was just like when I saw him it was like holy cow where did he come from <laughs> but uh it was it was so much fun I'll never forget it and I'm sure you know you' got a lot of listeners now you've had some other hunters on there and they can attest to it it's just like you know it's just the the memories of of hunts like that um it it's hard to describe to anyone you know when when you when you, when you pick up a bow and you go out hunting like that, and when you make a shot, a a very confident shot and, uh, you know, you've done your homework, uh, you, you know, you've, you've scouted and, 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 uh, put in your practice and when it all comes together, there's, there's not a better feeling in the world.
0: You always talk about hunting being an adventure and you even use that term adventure. And I think this was just another one of them, but I also think, One of the things I've always respected about you, Ron, (laughs) is that you're just as happy coming out of the woods when you shot at something and even when you haven't. And so uh, obviously it's more exciting whenever something like this goes down. But I think uh, there's something to keeping perspective when you're out there that you have to keep keep the hope and keep the enjoyment regardless of the outcome. And I feel like you would have been just about as happy coming out of there, even if you didn't get this deer, if you never saw it. Oh yeah,
2: for sure. I mean, you know, uh, uh, killing the deer is just a bonus. I mean, I go out every day when I go out bow hunting, it's just like, you, you know, I'm, uh, like I said, uh, and, and this is something I will bring up, uh, you know, as far as the habitat aspect of, you know, doing habitat work when I'm sitting there up in the stand, I'm just, I'm just not sitting there just bored to death. I mean, i I'm, I'm anything I hear, you know, there's so many woodpeckers in there, so much other wildlife, but also, I'm looking, looking at, uh, I'm identifying the tree species in there, you know, the, the uh, you know, if there's anything that, anything that, uh, looking for what I call anchor points to do some habitat work. Or, you know, to do some habitat manipulation or, or something to enhance the, the wildlife value of the of the landscape. So I'm just not sitting there in a deer stand um just numb minded. You know, that, that it's you, you gotta you gotta you gotta um take it all in, you know. It's just it's it's about um God's great creation, I guess.
0: So Speaking of taking it all in and thank you for that, Ron. I think that just sums it up beautifully. And I, I very much try to be the same way. There's just so much you can't control out there, but one thing you can control is just uh, how you enjoy it. And so I think keeping that in perspective is critical. Hey, let's switch gears real quick here. Was able to get you out here out to the mountains. What, what was your impression of that?
2: It was refreshing, you know, um, I've spent too much time down here in this uh, lower coastal plain of the Del Peninsula that uh um you know, I remember fifteen actually it was longer than that. I used to go to Dolly Sods, used to go turkey hunting and and I missed going up there to the mountains. So it was really refreshing coming out there. Uh, I was so excited to uh to get the tour of the property. We walked it from boundary boundary line to boundary line and and uh it was great, beautiful trap stream. It was, it was
1: refreshing. So Ron, I'm gonna jump in here for a second just to pick your brain. Um, so what, what Nick is mentioning is that Ron came uh, to Pennsylvania a couple weeks ago to take a look at Nick's new property and give him some insight and then help him with some habitat work. So when you walk that place, boundary, li- boundary line to boundary line, um, I got to see some of the work that you did. Can you describe that uh, location just on the outside of Nick's core or hub food plot right in the middle of this place and and why you decided to implement some type of habitat work there? What did you see that made you want to get out that chainsaw and, and start dropping trees? <laughs>
2: yeah, you know, as I told Nick, I, I mean, i was i didn't say anything at first because you know like i said i've got it's been so long since i've been up there in the mountains and i didn't want to make any assessments on what to do this or that just jump into it i wanted nick to take me over the whole property i wanted to see the whole property you know we didn't see every square inch of it but we just did a from one end to the other kind of like a cross grid before i started making evaluations and i look for I look for, anchor, like I said this before, when, when I'm doing some kind of habitat, micromanagement, habitat, timber stand improvement, whatever you want to call it, I'm looking for anchor points. I'm looking for something. And when we got to that one area, um, um, the, the, the the oaks that were in there, the regeneration of oaks, there were some oaks in there, young oaks that were, I don't know, they could have been five year old, you know, I, I don't know how old they're, you know, you got a different growing growing season up there, but you had some young oaks, you, you had some mid story oaks. And that 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 to me, that just the light bulb went off. It's like, you know, you had a lot of you had the oaks that were trying to pop up through there and you had them fast growing maples, um, um, cherry trees that were just out competing them and it was like right here. I said this is this is one um uh area that you can do some habitat work on and I would do first and especially with Nick's food plot right there and it was right in right in the area where he shot his uh his Pennsylvania buck there this year. And so we were gonna we were going to uh create an edge. We we're gonna release oak trees and we we're gonna put in structure there. So there was like, you know, I'm like Okay, some areas will do one thing, some areas would just do you know, what I'm thinking about when we get up into the, the three prong approach of what we're doing here, and that, that area just struck me as you know this this is one area that you can you can definitely make an impact. Uh, a short term uh, uh, wildlife enhancement habitat, short term, and then long term, too, you know, getting those oaks going there. so that was that was really cool. Um, you know, in the back there he had uh you know he had a trout stream i can't remember it was on the north side i think it was the north, north side of the property there you know hit beautiful hemlocks in there it was i was really surprised that they weren't none of them were affected by the woolly adelgid that's affecting along the hemlocks but you know there's riparian areas those uh, water courses up there you wouldn't want to do anything because i know that you and nick like the trout fish and what a trout need they need cold clear water and you don't want you don't want to do anything in this riparian areas you want and plus you know those trees create that micro habitat there microclimate and plus when those trees get old and some when they when they fall into those streams they create natural dams and eddies and stuff in there for them fish you know it's all part of the whole ecology so it was cool
1: so let's back you up a little bit. You mentioned when you saw that that core area of Nick's property where he has that food plot that that just stimulated your thought processes as, as an anchor area. But you mentioned a three prong approach. Why don't you quickly just give us what number one is, number two is, and number three is of that three prong approach?
2: Okay, so where Nick's stand was it just it just worked out great. Um, we 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 created an edge to enhance those deer movement by his stand that was the one thing second thing is we were creating a lot of structures you know we were we were we were cutting those trees down um and, and you know you could you you it'd be looking like looked like you were looking across an ag field that had trees sticking up in it well we, we put all that structure in and you couldn't see you couldn't see 30 40 yards from like say four or five foot eye level down, you couldn't see to the ground. And so we created that structure in there, and that's going to be good for that, you know that's that's just going to be uh, conducive to uh, deer going in there when you when you start getting them stem sprouts next year, and and plus they're probably gonna red maple down here. When you cut a red maple, you know people said. Oh, you gotta put out corn. I said, then You ain't got to put out corn, just cut a red maple tree down. I said it'll attract more deer than than all get out. But uh so we created structure. That was the and then the third thing, we released those oak trees. Those oak trees competing for sunlight, they're competing for water, and they're competing for nutrients. So you just release them and they're they're just gonna be able to flex their muscles and start growing. And he had a good he had a good uh, he had a good um diversity there of both the red oak and the white oak so it was it was really cool it's good it, it you know it's funny we talk about deer hunting but uh i told nick i said i enjoy this just as much as deer hunting going up doing this kind of habitat work it, it's just so cool and uh um, you know you're you're you um you're enhancing your property you're enhancing the wildlife value of it and um, you know, a lot of, a a lot of properties, I I know one time when I went to Western Maryland, I was looking for a property out there, and you know, that the realtor would say, oh, this is a beautiful property. And I was like, no, it's not. I said, what do you mean? I said, they got nice trees. And I said, yeah, they come, they come in and what they call high graded to cut down all of the quality white oak tree, all of the quality oak trees, they cut all of them down and left all of the Right maple or you know, sugar maple or whatever. And I said, if you buy that property, first thing you do is you're going to have to pay somebody to go in there and cut all that stuff down so you can start over and erase that and, and and get to where you want it to be, you know? And uh, anyway, I'm getting off track there, but uh, I hope that answers your question, Dr. Pike.
1: It does. Thank you. just wanted you to kind of clarify that because I got to see it, but I wanted um, you to explain it. And then Nick, if you want to jump in and just kind of, you know, finish finish this up with your thoughts about the before and the after.
0: No, I thought it was great. I mean, the first thing I was reminded of is that Ron's a maniac with the chainsaw. Once he gets it started, I think he only stopped because he had to sharpen the blade at one point. And I was embarrassed because I had some trees that I dropped across the run road, and I had to spend time cleaning those up. And then I'm playing around with my drone, trying to get some good video footage and all this other stuff. Because at NDA, we like to have all that B-roll and things for our videos. Good. And so, anyway, Ron was uh, just a cutting machine up there. And so I told him he's he's certainly welcome anytime because there's still a ton of work to do there. So, hey, Ron, I do want to I want to close with this though. Turkey season's right around the corner. What's the prospects look like?
2: I think it looks pretty good, actually. I got a text message from my daughter up there in Greenwood. She said she went out to go to work this morning, and she said she heard three or four toms gobbling across the across the road adjacent field from the house. I said, well, that's good. So, but uh, down in the swamp there, I think uh, where it was relatively dry in last spring, I think we're gonna have good recruitment. Um, I know when you were down here bow hunting this this past fall, you seen a lot of, you seen a lot of sign and I've been seeing areas where they're really scratching up in some of this habitat work I've been
0: doing there and here. So I think it's gonna be a pretty good spring. Well, I'm sure we'll report on it here on the show and. Ron, I know you got some things to tend to, but thank you so much for coming on. It was great to hear from you and I uh, look forward to catching up again soon. Well,
2: thanks for having me on. And I'll tell you, Nick, you know, you had some as a matter of fact, I missed one of the podcasts. I found. I said, you know what? There's one one I missed what it was, but it was it was uh, what was the gal's name? The Archery Longbow. Jennifer uh, Delaney. Yeah,
0: Jen. Yep. Jen oh Delaney. God,
2: what a gal what a gal i mean it's great to it's great to have people like that on the podcast so um you know it, it it's kind of it's kind of refreshing so but yep so uh you know on another one other thing on this habitat work you know and i i stress you know when you're when you're doing a lot of this work by yourself um you've got to be make sure that you've got you're prepared for anything and I know, you know, I've got my Delaware, my Maryland, Delaware master logger certification. And I was a little bit lax on first aid, uh, you know, having a fire extinguisher in your truck. Um, you wanna have, they've got these little uh, pack kits, the laceration first aid It's these little, they're like a little five inch square bag. You know, you can get like three or four of them, every, every backpack or anything you do when you're doing chainsaw work, be prepared. Um, you know, because you're out there by yourself, you're using a very dangerous tool. Chainsaw is a wonderful thing, but it, it can bite you really hard. So you've got to be really careful. Um, and then that's my advice, you know, uh, another thing too, I, I've said something to this Nick when you're out there doing chainsaw work and you start getting fatigued, you start getting tired or you start um you're not sharp, you, it, take a break. You know, put the saw down, uh just take a little walk, you know, a lot of times. You know, just take a little hike or, or you know, just take a break because you don't want to be, you know, most most people are killed with a chainsaw felling trees and and usually it's due to they're not sharp-minded. They're getting tired. Uh, they get they forget to do something, and, and and it can cost them. So
0: I'll leave you with that. It's always interesting talking with Ron because you can't just do a show with Ron and just talk about a deer that he shot, right? I mean, it can go any anything that you bring up in those conversations. You could spend a whole show just talking about that one thing, and we covered a lot of ground this time.
1: We did. We did. I think that um, he did a nice job explaining that uh, 2020 buck that he shot, which I got to see a picture of the mount. I never saw the buck um, up until he actually had it back from the taxidermist, but that was a very impressive deer. And secondarily, to actually get him to, you know, give us some insight in regards to what he thinks when he actually jumps into a piece of ground that he wants to work on and perform some habitat work. And it was nice that it was just happened to be in and around this area. So it goes to show you that when someone's actually skilled at assessing a situation, whether it be from, you know, low coastal plains or low coastal um, habitat to, you know, mountain mountainous ranges, you know, that are along the, you know, Appalachian mountains here, there's, there's a lot of, links and threads that you can actually, um, really work your way around. And his, I like his thought process of an anchor point. There's gotta be some reason that's going to make me actually begin to implement work right here. That's going to benefit wildlife habitat and maybe even my hunting. So I liked that.
0: Yeah. And I like how he really keeps things in perspective. And I mean, I, I've been lucky enough to get my hands on that deer <laughs> Uh, you know, being over there and it's an amazing deer, but you can tell in Ron's voice, he's just as excited talking about the habitat and the other things going on. And I can tell you when I'm over there and we're talking deer and hunting, he gets excited about the hunting, but he also gets excited about wanting to look at uh, timber cuts and other habitat work he did. And uh, so it's just, a, it's really just a, a full circle event whenever, whenever you're there. So uh, and I thought that we got into a lot of that here in the conversation. Speaking back, going back to the habitat work that you and I did, and it was interesting. And this is, I think where Ron talking about safety was so timely because you and I talked about this and we were working. Uh, we went out and did some work and it, it became a lot more technical. It's not as simple as if, if you're inexperienced with a chainsaw. It's really not as simple as just going out and firing a saw up and dropping trees. I mean, you can get yourself into trouble in a real quick hurry. And, uh, you know, it was just valuable having some experience out there, getting into some of the situations we got ourselves into.
1: Well, as as Ron said, he's a master logger. I was actually uh, apprenticed and trained by a master logger. And the one thing that made me smile, and this will make Ron smile as well, is that as soon as we pulled down to that area and parked your your, uh, UTV, you grabbed your bag and you looked at me and you said, This is my this is my safety kit. And again, I really appreciate that because kind of watching you come along, you know, year after year, um, you know, I'm really a stickler on safety. And you probably to the point last year where I was probably getting more on your nerves than anything else. But to to see you actually completely acknowledge that right off the bat, because I think when someone's with you. It's actually good for me to know where that safety kit is because you might not be able to retrieve it yourself so um, you were doing all the cutting I was just uh, there with the habitat hook kind of backing you up giving you some, uh, you know, giving you some support, but um, my also when I when I'm not cutting one of my roles is is to kind of act as kind of like that safety supervisor i'm watching the trees if it starts to move before you're ready for it, if you're still in there cutting real hard going full throttle you know you're going to get you know you're going to get a little cue from me that it's time to you know maybe back out and maybe put a wedge in that tree or um at the end as you mentioned um we started actually you know making some mistakes the trees weren't felling where we were projecting them to fell and um it just became a little sloppy. And, and like I said, my rule is as soon as I make three mistakes and that not like major mistakes, but if a tree doesn't fell where I expect it to, if I bog a saw down a little bit, um, if, you know, if I just kind of find my focus, I misstep around the tree, like I go in and not, I'm like, oh, I should be fine. I won't clear as, a uh, a wide area around the tree. So I have an escape route. Those, those little mental shortcuts. When I realize I've done those, my rule is after three of those small mental errors, it's time to sit down and get something to drink, eat, or stop for the day. And that's what we did.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, (laughs) you don't want to get cut with a chainsaw folks period or worse. And so, yeah, the safety first, that's the very first thing. Ron would stress if he's teaching somebody, new on a saw is the safety part of it. Uh, Hey, I found three sheds, which is exciting. And I'm curious about your input on this. So the very first one I found was from not this past season, but the season before. I'm pretty certain of it. And then I did find a fresh one, which I was excited about. And then the next one I found was also old. I feel like I find 50% of my sheds are from previous seasons, (laughs) What is, I mean, is there anything to that? Why is it that we sometimes find these sheds that have already been laying out there for a year? We find them two years later.
1: Uh, To be honest with you, if I told you an answer, I'd be lying to you. Um, All I can say is that I do, because I'm not an aggressive shed hunter, it's just something that I don't have the time for. The majority of mine that I do find are older, and I usually find them during turkey season. And my guess is, and the only thing I can say, and this is a straight guess, I'm just going to say it, is that the ones that fall that first year, I don't know, maybe, you know, if it's windy, you know, the leaves are still kind of light and they rustle around. It might cover up, you know, a shed because it gets really windy around here in the springtime. And then after the, the leaves start to rot and deteriorate that the shed that might've been covered up is exposed. I have no idea. I mean, that's that's about as long a shot of as an answer as you're going to get out of me. But my whole point is I think a certain amount, unless you have a dog or you're really scouring, you know, gritting to find sheds, I just think, unfortunately, it's more probably luck or coincidence or chance.
0: Yeah, I think you can narrow down some of the more likely places you might find one. But I think there's also a lot of luck involved. And uh, turkey season is also a time that I have found many sheds over the years. And I think part of that is you're setting up in spots. You're sitting there for a long time. You're scouring, uh, looking looking out across the landscape. And I think when you're shed hunting, it becomes more about, I want to cover as much ground as I can today. And so you probably pass by as many as you pick up. I agree. I agree. Speaking of turkey season, you texted me something that's very concerning, Mike. You said that you were down to three turkey shells and you're having trouble finding them.
1: Yeah, I actually, um, I have a, a shell that really patterns very, very well out of my gun. And I've had a stockpile, I shouldn't say a stockpile, but I have had enough of them over the past two years so that I can actually sight in my gun because I always sight in my gun. You know why we do that. And this year I'm down to, I'm going to have to sight in with one shell and at least leave two for hunting because I hunt here and I hunt in New York. But I actually scoured the internet two nights and I cannot find the make and the shot size that I need for my gun, and um, I, I everyone could just say, "Want well, just change?" And I could, but I just don't want to go through the time and trouble. I have that gun shooting so well with that with that specific load. I want to just leave it be. So, um, options, you know, uh, probably could just call for you. I could take a bow. I mean, I, I have options, but uh, it's just this whole supply chain issue and you know raw materials. I'm going to use the term crisis. Um, this is the first time it's actually hit me pretty close to home. I've always had everything else I've needed in excess, but this one was the first time I actually I'm feeling the crunch. I'm a little bit concerned.
0: Well, I'm guessing you're not alone. And people listening to this might say, uh Oh, I better go to the gun safe and see what I have in the way of Turkey loads. My issue is I've got plenty of Turkey loads, but I've got various different species of Turkey loads. <laughs> and so for a long time, I had a good A good buddy that uh, worked at Federal and uh, being partners of organizations I've worked for, his, you know, when you hunt with that guy, it also tends to come with a a gift pack of shotgun shells. But they are always in like whatever their new thing is that year that they're working on that they want to get out there. And so I've got, you know, everything from third degree to TSS to whatever. And uh, so that's part of my challenge. Now, the one nice thing is my gun generally seems to pattern pretty much the same on that stuff. And to your point, get out there and shoot your turkey gun, folks. Otherwise, you'll be like me and become a statistic (laughs) where (laughs) you put in all this hard work to call in a freaking turkey and you do it all. And it's this beautiful hunt. And you call a turkey from from far away, across the road and everything else, only to miss it because you didn't pattern your gun. So don't be like me. Don't be on the B team. Get out there and pattern your gun. The doctor's going to pattern his, even if it just leaves him with two shells. And I just, I feel like that there's a story waiting to happen here this
1: spring. Let's hope, let's let's hope. I mean, that I get, I get a chance to, uh, to put a turkey in front of that gun, but beyond that, we'll, we'll have to wait and see.
0: Well, I've got a little bit of driving coming up too, and I'm going to have my turkey calls. I got some new diaphragm calls. I'm going to have them with me and start working them. I've already not done what I said I was going to do last year. And that was spend a little bit of time all year long working on my turkey calls. Well, that didn't happen once again. So setting myself up for failure, of course. But anyway, well, I think we'll leave it at that. Much more to come on the, on the turkey front and the, the comedy that's sure to come with that. I want to thank Ron again for being on the show. And I know Ron's also a big time listener of the show. So it's a pleasure to have him on. And I won't leave you with a long closing today, folks. I'll just say, consider joining the National Deer Association, please. Take advantage of that Onyx offer that I mentioned uh, we certainly could use your support as always the deer needs you. We need you a lot going on in the deer world, even if it's not anywhere near deer season. So just keep that in mind. Also, if you do decide to just join us and you don't take advantage of the on X offer, uh, just use the, the promo code podcast. When you check out and you'll save five bucks on a $35 membership. So with that, thank you again for joining us. Look forward to bringing you the next episode, national deer association, where we are united for deer.